This is episode six of Practical Philanthropy with me, Lynn Tomlinson, Head of Impact at Casanova Capital. If you have listened to our other episodes, then a huge thank you and a very warm welcome back. If this is your first episode, then this is the podcast that exists to bring the deep knowledge and expertise of underfunded areas of philanthropy to the surface to share learning and encourage and foster collaboration. In this episode, I bring you a conversation with Rebecca Gill, the awesome CEO of Roja, the Foundation for Women and Girls. Together, we explore the extent of inequality for women and girls here in the UK. To describe Rebecca as an expert would be a disservice. She brings to our conversation a lifetime of dedication and passion for improving women and girls' lives. Rosa, under her leadership, has mapped the entire women and girls sector in the UK. The outcome of this sector mapping is eye-opening and really, really not in a positive way. We've highlighted on this podcast the challenges that face small charities, but Rosa's work shines a light into a sector that is so small, it is almost invisible. At the same time, these organisations are delivering the most complex work, working with people with really complex needs and even changing the law. As a sector, women and girls organisations receive less than 2% of funding in the UK, but what they do with that funding, as you will hear, is nothing short of remarkable. So we've covered some difficult areas in this season of practical philanthropy, from humanitarian giving to funding peaceful, non-violent protests. But I wanted to share that this episode contains discussions which reference some upsetting subjects and which can be triggering for some people, such as violence against women and girls. So listener discretion is advised. But let's get to today's episode with our voice from the front line, Rebecca Gill. Wonderful. Right. So are you happy to get going? Yeah, let's give it a go. Yeah, brilliant. I will say thank you uh, so much, Rebecca, for coming on Practical Philanthropy today. So you're the CEO of ROSA, um, and ROSA is a grant-making foundation which is focused on raising awareness and campaigning for issues that affect women and girls. Um, And importantly, you fund only women-led organisations. So can you tell us a little bit about the work you do, Rebecca, and what women-led organisations are? Yeah, so we're the only funder in the UK that's dedicated solely to funding women and girls organisations and we're very proud of of the work that we do. And we run grants programmes that we have designed based on the needs of the women and girls sector. So through our work with those organisations, we've identified areas where, where they need to be strengthened mm-hmm. and we do, we're do we a fundraising grant maker. So all the money that we um, invest in organisations, we have to raise. We're not an endowed fund. Yeah. Um, and so we, we do our grant making. We also focus on strengthening the sector and strengthening women and girls organisations. So we give organisations grants, but we also run free support for women and girls mm-hmm. organisations where they can um, develop um, themselves um, and the other area of our focus is around research mm. and evidence building so we can use our voice to get more awareness and funding to the women and girls sector. That's brilliant and can you just tell us a little bit why it's so important to support women-led organisations and specifically what women-led organisations are? Yeah so um Women-led organisations are organisations where the majority of the trustees mm. and the majority of the senior leadership team are women 
um, and their charitable objectives or the objectives of their community interest company are for the benefit of women and girls. Mm. And we use that definition and we don't fund anybody else. Yeah. Um, and we do that work because we know that if you look at any point in history across the United Kingdom, every single progress mm. in law, culture and practice which have benefited women and girls has been won by women for women. And that's why we invest in that sector. Women organising, women building organisations to progress and to um, steward mm. change and progress has been absolutely critical to the success of w women's lives in this country mm. and actually around the globe. And the one that immediately springs to mind is the suffragette movement, of course. But have you got any other um, examples that you could give us? Yeah, you can go back to the um, earlier than the suffragettes. You can look at the work of Elizabeth Fry, mm. who talked about women prisoners and mm. campaigned with other women to support women prisoners, right through to the suffragettes and the suffragists. And obviously, mm. Millicent Fawcett was a yeah. founder of the Fawcett Society. <laughs> um, but along through the whole of the 20th century, where you had so many progressive organisations established, I think, of Southall Black Sisters, mm. which was established in the 1980s to support um, black and minoritised women um, with individual direct support, but also advocacy and campaigning mm. to change the law for those women and girls. And there are examples across the country, mm. all four nations, um, of you know women's refuge and thinking about women who set up refuge and how many incredible pieces of work were and organisations were developed as a result of those individual women coming together, organising to create um, change for individual women, but actually change in the law um, and in service delivery for women and girls who mm. are fleeing domestic violence. And that's quite interesting just in terms of that, because when you think of charity and philanthropy, particularly when you're thinking about a gender focus, I think what immediately springs to everyone's minds is what you've just mentioned there, which is, you know, women um, refuges and um, women and children fleeing domestic violence. But that's just really the tip of the iceberg, isn't it, when it comes to the challenges that women and girls face. So could you just talk us through and give us this, a sense of the breadth and the scale of the issues that both women are facing and also the areas that you're funding? Yeah, so we're very proud at Rosa that we fund women and girls organisations essentially from cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. So we fund um, some organisations that are working with new mothers uh, to support their babies, maybe yeah. it's through baby banks and food programmes. But we also fund a lot of girls' empowerment programmes. Um, so that could be something like Girls Rise Up, which does campaigning and activity with girls to support them to be more confident. Um, there's a uh, programme out in, in Gateshead, um, you know, Women's Project, which again is working with girls with complex needs mm. to support them to advocate for their own rights. And that's a really important part of that work. Um, a lot of work are on maternal health, reproductive rights all over the country, um, through to, to women campaigning around um, women's pensions, yeah. equal pay, mm. rights at work. Um, and then we, we fund women's centres mm. as well around the country. And, and these centres are physical spaces where women can go to get advice and support and net, network and connections. Mm. And some of them run after school clubs. They'll run, you know, support for women who might have no other support in their lives. That We've got one up and I'm thinking about one up in um, the Granby Somali Women's Centre up in, in Liverpool where they do a lot of work on be, sitting on the phone to the gas 
companies and the water companies to support women who may not have English as a first language, yeah. who may not be educated to a very high level, mm-hmm. who can't necessarily advocate for themselves and their gas bills are going up. The yeah. cost of living crisis mm-hmm. is having this immense impact on women across the country and these women's centres are are places where they can go to get food to get one meal a day for their families um to to get after school support and during school support and to get support for themselves Mm. and it can feel quite hard to describe actually you know sometimes it can feel a bit nebulous but those organizations can be the difference between women surviving Mm. and women thriving and in some situations between life and death for women and that is not an exaggeration these organizations are offering life-saving support and you talked about the um the cultural aspect there so could you just talk a little bit more about that because the uk is obviously such a diverse um, culture but that presumably brings with it its own challenges you mentioned the issues around sort of language etc but could you just talk to us about the, the funding that you're doing around that that sort of area yeah so what we know from our own work is that organizations particularly that are led by and for black and minoritized women and girls receive less funding than those that are what we'd call race neutral yeah. or are led by white women And so we set up the RISE Fund where we were able to raise a million pounds to invest in small black-led women's organisations. And um, we supported them with grants. um, And we did this because what we heard from those organisations is they were really, really struggling with a massive increase in demand for services Mm -hmm. and advocacy with the but the rising cost of living was making the issues that those the women they were working with much more complex so you've got this kind of perfect storm of um women needing more support but charities not necessarily getting more funding so they were having to do so much more with less and um we've been able to fund some organizations where we know based on what they've told us that we are the difference between them surviving and closing Mm -hmm. but we had yet um, earlier last week from an organization where as a result of the grant they got through the rise fund they were then able to um raise other funds from other funders and one of them is just to secure their first lottery grant of two hundred thousand pounds and they were very clear that without our funding they would not have been able to do that and that's what we exist to do we really trust these organizations we really invest in these organizations to enable them to go to other funders that might not be as close to the work that they do want to fund them but um wouldn't necessarily fund their core or their chief executive or fund a fundraiser or something that's what we do and we exist to enable them to get other money in that's brilliant and um can we go a little bit deeper into the lack of funding for the sector for a moment because um one of the reasons that we started this podcast was to bring um underfunded areas to to people's attention and awareness because I think 10% of charities get 90% of the funding, don't they, in the UK? And they're Mm. typically the larger charities. And you've done an amazing um, piece of research of mapping the sector um, in terms of of where where money's actually going. And so I just wondered if you could enlighten us a little bit about the, you know, what you what you found from that research and and um, and what the state of funding for women led organisations are. Yeah, it was a really shocking piece of research, actually, because 
we knew speaking to women's organisations and we knew speaking to funders that there was this kind of disconnect where funders were saying, we are funding the women and girls mm. sector and women and girls organisations were saying, we can't get any money. And we sort of felt there was this grey space where we had to find out what was going on, you know. <laughs> so we worked in partnership with National Lottery and with Esme Fairburn to, to commission Sheffield Hallam University to do this research yeah. for us. And what we um, found was that less than 2%, 1.8% of all charitable grants are go to women and girls organisations. Yeah. And the average grant is £10,000 a year. I found that absolutely staggering, that, that it level is of grant. It is so shocking. Mm. And 85% of the women and girls sector mm. is what you call micro charity yeah. and micro organisation. And the kind of combination of this, of this information really adds up to a much bigger picture, which is women's organisations are doing more with less. Mm. They are invisible, they are undervalued and they are underfunded. And what we would say is that pretty much reflects the way in which women's labour <laughs> is recognised in wider society. Mm. And just as, as every organisation we fund exists to progress women's lives so rosa exists to progress women's and girls organizations yeah. in in that same way and it's just simply unacceptable that we expect these organizations to do so much with so little and they cannot thrive yeah. and they cannot do what they need to do in the way that they need to do it with so little funding yeah. women's and girls organizations make up about three and a half percent of the charitable mm. sector we get less than two percent of the funding yeah. We've done this research to kind of, in a way, benchmark. Yeah. Like, no one can argue with our number. And we want to run it again mm. in a couple of years' time mm. to see if that number's shifted. And our ambition is that the dial has shifted up mm. <laughs> and that women's organisations <laughs> are not just... Um, collectively able to access more charitable funding mm. but individual organizations are being able to access the kind of resources that they need to to enable them to do the work that they do well and why do you think that's happening because we're 51 percent of the population i mean we have something quite similar in in financial services in the venture capital world women founded businesses get less than one percent of funding so it's obviously not just about the charity sector um, why why do you think that the funding just isn't getting to where it needs to be? I think it's a kind of complex mix of, mm. you know, of, of factors um, at play. I think there is a generally an assumption, and I think there always has been strangely an assumption, that somehow we've, we've achieved equality. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, I've been in this field for 25 years and there's always been this assumption we've achieved equality mm. and yet still here I am doing <laughs> this work and it still seems to be as critical as it yeah. always was. So there is this myth that, that something has, has been achieved mm. and, and, and therefore we don't need to fund, why do we need to fund women-led organisations seems to be one theory. Um, and there's an invisibility mm. to women's organisations. What we find with, say, statutory funding is that um, statutory agencies want to fund gender-neutral organisations mm -hmm. and those gender-neutral neutral organisations will then go to women and girls organisations and ask them to, to kind of take on aspects yeah. of service delivery work. But women's organisations struggle to get access to those statutory mm. agencies to say, we can do this work. Because they're so small. Because they're because so they're small. Tiny. Exactly yeah. that. And they're yeah. not being given the resource to be able to grow. Mm. But also because sometimes what they do looks expensive mm. because they are dealing with women with very complex needs. Yeah. And it might be because of the impact of poverty, of mental health, of maternal 
rights, of, you know, long-term impact of poor maternity services and so on, um, discrimination, inequality over and over. And you layer into that something um, like the experience for black and minoritized women and girls. And the the, the organisation looks even more expensive. Mm. And they just cannot get the kind of money that they need. And they're not taken as serious as they should be by funders. I think the other issue, though, um, that we see is a lot of funders don't know these organisations exist yeah. because they're small. Mm. And a lot of the funders in the UK will like to fund organisations that are slightly larger. And they look at an organisation with a kind of, you know, quite low income and they think, we don't think you could cope with more money. Mm. So those organisations stay small. Yeah. So it's not a kind of active, we don't want to fund women and girls organizations um so much as you look quite small we can't even see you mm. um we don't think you could cope with more money so we won't give you more money and that kind of slightly vicious circle continues yeah. such a big problem and what sort of levels of income are we talking about here because quite from a from a philanthropist perspective if you're sort of giving 30 40 000 pound grants over multiple years actually funding smaller organizations is the utopia because you can actually see the transformational impact um you know your money's being put to work really well and you can be really really engaged versus giving thirty thousand to a charity that's got you know sort of 50 million pounds income Absolutely. which some do mm. um and that's where the majority of the funding goes so how how do you think we can enable more of more of that money to go into that into the sector i think part of it is about pieces of research like this yes. so philanthropists mm. are really keen to know more um, and as part of the mapping research we um sheffield hallam produced a a tool for us that you can mm. find it on the rosa website and that shows you all the charities um women's and girls charities yeah. by with a map mm. and you can type in a postcode you can type in a an area of work you're interested in funding and that will show you mm. what organizations are out there um within of up to you know to tiny yeah. organizations and very big organizations yeah. we've um, been quite careful with our violence against women and girls mm. organizations yeah, we've only mapped them by region yeah. because mm. obviously we don't want to be sharing information that's not our, um, for sharing but generally you can see what's out mm. there and what size of organizations are out there there's quite a lot of due diligence that needs mm. to be done on organizations yeah. and so certainly we you know, our work at Rosa is about funding small organisations mm. and some donors like to fund Rosa to fund mm. those organisations yes, yeah. because we do, we've got, you know, 15 years of experience yeah. of doing the due diligence. We've got a database. We've, mm. we've got, we're very, very strong at working out where the money needs to go yeah. and making sure that it gets there. Yeah. Part of our approach to grant making is not just about giving money out, but demystifying grant making for the women and girls sector. Yeah. So whenever we design a fund, if I think about the Stand With Us fund, which is our fund for violence against women and girls, we we were um, donated half a million pounds by mm. Reclaim These Streets, yeah. which was set up um, in the aftermath of um, Sarah Everard's yeah. kidnap, rape mm. and murder. Mm. And they raised, um, the group of women came together, raised half a million pounds, yeah. And they were looking around for organisations to give mm. it to, and they chose Rosa. Mm. And they came with us on this on this journey to develop the Stand With Us fund. Mm. So we had Reclaim These Streets, and then we had five women from women and girls organisations who were experts in violence against women and girls. And they designed that fund. Yeah. And then when we had to make the decisions about where the money went, they sat on the decision panel yeah. and helped us make that decision. So you had Reclaim These Streets women who'd not been anywhere near grant making mm. in their whole lives, who'd raised all those pounds, yeah. were able to see exactly where it went. And that yeah. was a very, very powerful 
powerful way of engaging people. Yeah. And again, with the women and girls sector, we try and get women's organisations in to help us make the decisions because we want charities to be able to see just that grant making is is not a mystery mm. you know it's difficult and it's yeah. really really tough yeah. and sometimes you can have the best application and you mm. still won't get the money because there's just not enough money yeah. um but we and we d want people to be able to see behind you know see behind the curtain yeah. really and see the wires and that's part of what rosa exists to do yeah well that's a fantastic example isn't it of collaboration and people admitting where where they're not the experts and handing over con that control, but still retaining some oversight as to how the money's gone. So that's really Absolutely, fascinating. Absolutely, yeah. And with our Rise Fund for our Black and Minoritised-led organisations, mm. our, our Black black and Minoritised trustees mm. were, ran that, um, and organisations um, led by and for Black and Minoritised mm. women helped to design that fund as well. Yeah. So it's very, very important yeah. that those with expertise, you know, we we want to co we want to kind of cohere mm. those people together to 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 bring their expertise to bear on mm. the decision making. Regular listeners to Practical Philanthropy will probably hear the word collaboration mentioned just a few times, uh, probably in every episode and every wrap up. And there's a very deliberate reason for this. And it isn't just that I've run out of things to say. It's because I really believe this is our superpower. There is nowhere near enough philanthropic capital to solve the challenges that we're facing. So this is a sector that really needs to collaborate more than any other. And as our series of voices from the front line showcases, there is no end of expertise, there's no end of research, and there's no end of brilliance out there to piggyback off. The challenge really is in finding it and finding that alignment. And I think for philanthropists, when they're faced with this dilemma of, should I establish my own charity? Should I fund others? Is that it seems a really binary decision, i.e. If you're funding another organisation, you just give your money away to a really large charity, goes into a big black hole, that ends up feeling really impersonal and you don't feel that connection with your philanthropy. But that's not what we're talking about here when we think of collaboration. There are a number of smaller foundations, family trusts and other organisations whose work you can leverage off. And Rebecca has given us a really wonderful example of collaboration in action in their Reclaim These Streets collaboration. Because given the public response and outpouring in the wake of Sarah Everard's murder, fundraising wasn't an issue, but deploying the capital in the right way was a challenge. And in this case, those who raised the funds had little experience of violence against women and girls, but they felt compelled to act and to make a difference. And this really resonated with me in terms of what sits at the heart of most people's philanthropy. Now, if we think about an alternative scenario, what actually could have happened post that fundraising? Reclaim these streets could have gone it alone. They could have made a few grants, built a portfolio, learnt a lot along the way. But in the worst case scenario, they could have got stuck. They could have become overwhelmed and they could have not got money out of the door. But they didn't. They realised that by partnering and collaborating with Rosa, with a team who deeply understood the sector, that they could fill their ambitions quicker and make a bigger impact. And in doing so, far from actually giving up control, they also, as Rebecca explains, came along on that journey. And it's this magic and this collaboration that we hope to inspire with this podcast. So go forth and collaborate. 
And you mentioned the local community there. And I spoke to Kate Markey, of, um, the CEO of the London Community Foundation, oh, yeah. last month. And um, and she was talking about collaboration between the state and um, smaller charities, etc. But are you starting to see that in your sector at all? Collaboration between the state and small charities. Yeah, so sort of local authorities coming to you and saying, look, you know, we ne- we know we've got an issue in this area. Can you help us solve for it? And what do you need? And is there enough We know that that, that does happen a bit mm, for yeah. women's organisations, but we also know that they're just the bottom of the pecking order, mm. that they are always given the most complicated um, work to do for the least amount yeah. of money. There are some enlightened um, mm. local authorities that do recognise the importance yeah. of funding women's organisations. Yeah. But again, it's often very, very specific service Mm. delivery. And I'd say that if you went back 30, 40 years to the the 1980s and 90s, I think you'd have found more women's centres and more women's organisations that were set up to empower women and girls Mm. to advocate for themselves. And there was a sort of value in campaigning and advocacy, Mm. in networking, in Mm. building communities of women. And that's where some of our power lies as a funder. You know, we've got our Voices from the Frontline programme delivering very small grants to women and girls' organisations, creating massive massive change so many of them some of it's about empowering young women to advocate for themselves Mm. to know how to speak in public to know how to speak to your local councillors some of it's about some of those some of our funding has has contributed to major legislative change yeah we don't always know where yeah. it's going to land, yeah. that's why we try to find as many as possible. Yeah, and that's why I want to, I did want to talk to you about that because um, we've done a few of these episodes now and and there's always a public policy advocacy angle if you really want to create a systemic change. Mm. But it's often seen, I think, by philanthropists as really expensive, really hard work, takes forever and, and perhaps high risk. But um, could you just tell us a little bit about some of the successes you've had around campaigning and actually how, sort of, I suppose for me, it was surprisingly how cost effective it was? Yes. Um, Voices from the Frontline has been, we're about to open uh, round six, so mm. we're going for a number of years. And we've given £5,000 to £7,000 mm. grants to hundreds of women's organisations. Yeah. Um, so Pregnant Then Screwed is a mm-hmm. national, um, quite now quite famous um, organisation that, that campaigns um, around the, the kind of motherhood penalty. Mm-hmm. So s- supporting women who've been um, experienced maternity discrimination. And th- we were one of their first funders. Mm-hmm. £5,000 grant, and then another £5,000 grant. Yeah. And I think over three or four years, we probably gave them about £15,000. Mm-hmm. And they're very clear that yeah. without Rose's funding, they wouldn't have been able mm-hmm. to do what they've done. Um, but equally, we've had um, the Middle Eastern Women's um, Organisation. They are a very small organisation that has been campaigning for many, many years around um, women's rights, around vaginoplasty mm-hmm. and hymenoplasty. Yeah. And within certain communities, there's an expectation that women will have invasive surgery and as a result of Rose's funding they were able to build a network of other organizations Mm. we gave them again five thousand pound grants over a couple of years they've changed the law Mm. they've they managed to to influence a a politician who bought a private member's bill that then Mm. became law and again they're very clear that Rose's um trust Mm. our early investment and then you use the word risk and sometimes it is Mm. a risk yeah and what I know after 25 years of working in the women and girls sector and around the women and girls sector is that you don't always see the change that you're trying to create Mm. in the year that you're creating it in the decade you're trying to create it 
And sometimes as a funder, you have to say, we will invest in this and, mm. and something will pop yeah. and it will take off. We've been funding one in Wales, the Fair Treatment for Women in Wales, and we funded them four or five years and they've been plugging away to try and get the NHS in mm. Wales to understand, to bring a gender lens essentially mm. to women's health issues and particularly for women with disabilities. And then suddenly a door opened for them and they were able to properly influence the whole of the Welsh health strategy. Yeah, but they didn't. They didn't come to Rosary in year yeah. one and say, we'd actually have this massive ambition. <laughs> they were like, could you help us like, just stay, yeah. you know, do some advocacy yeah. work? But year after year, mm. they've come back to us and we've awarded them a grant. And suddenly they're in, they're around the table. Yeah. And that's what we exist to do mm. is to just, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom in terms <laughs> of campaigning. And I'd say to any donor and any philanthropist, it is a risk. And you don't always know what's going to take yeah. off. But it, it is how progress for women's and girls' rights happens, not just in the UK, but around the globe. Mm -hmm. It's trust, yeah. it's ambition, and it's being prepared to stand back and say, we don't know which one of these is going to take off yeah. or when, and we're still going to invest in it. Yeah. And it's finding it, I suppose, isn't it? Like you say, so the fact that you've just got that oversight of the whole sector is really helpful. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that the mapping research, we, we were able to kind of we reckon there's about seven and a half thousand women's and girls organizations across the United mm. Kingdom. Gosh. Well, we've got about 6,000 on our database. Yeah. You know, we are very well networked after mm. 15 years. We, we have access to many, many thousands of women and girls mm. organizations. Um, and we have very strong relationships with them as well. And that's something that we, you know, really pride ourselves on is, is being a funder that's close to women's and girls mm. organizations that we, we really trust them and they trust us. Yeah. That's fantastic. And can I just ask you, because you've mentioned so many times just how long you've been active in this sector, so it, what would be the one thing that you'd want to happen that could move the dial for it? I would really, I'm very, very passionate about the women and girls sector. Mm -hmm. I would like every funder, yeah. um, every family foundation, mm -hmm. major donor to have a women and girls fund yeah. to say we will ring fence this amount of money mm. every year and it will go to women's and girls organisations. And there is a difference there. One of the things that the mapping research found is about 25 million pounds, 24 million pounds a year goes to gender neutral organisations that are delivering women and girls work. Yeah. What they are doing is brilliant work yeah. and there's n nothing I'm going to knock about the work that they're doing. But what we know about women-led organisations is that we are here for the long term yeah. and we always have been. And when you invest in women's organisations, you invest in long-term, deep change mm. and progress for women and girls. When the fashions change, when the wind blows a different direction, mm. women's and girls' organisations are still here. Yeah. Other people have moved on. Mm. And that's why I would want every funder to have specific women-focused, women and girl-focused funding that they've ring-fenced to invest in women and girls' organisations. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting because I've just finished um, recording a climate podcast and one of the things I talked about on that is that you can apply a climate lens to all your philanthropy. So even if you're not you don't consider yourself a climate-based philanthropist you could look at your grant making and think well how does climate intersect with that so health you know if you're funding health for example just realizing that air pollution has a really material negative impact on people's health and kills millions of people uh, early each year and then 
how you might perhaps use part of your your grant making in health to have perhaps you know advocate for sort of clean air funds for mm. example those sorts of campaigns and um, so really bringing that sort of uh, climate lens into your philanthropy feels to me like there's a gender lens that you could bring into almost any any area of what you're giving do, do you have any sort of insight or thoughts that you could share with us around that I think I would I know that some of the biggest changes to any other form of, you know, mm. it could be homelessness or mm. housing, climate change, health. Mm. If you brought a gender lens into that, and I think about climate change a lot, yeah. because what we have seen for the last 50 years is um, a lot of people who are the least affected by mm. climate change talking about climate mm. change. Yeah. And women are always on the sharpest yeah. end of conflict, of climate change, mm. of um, housing problems, yeah. homelessness, mm. health inequalities, you will find women yeah. there. And I do wish that when there was funding going into mm. all sorts of schemes, and I'll use climate change as an example, that there was n there was a gender lens brought yeah. to that. Because I think that would make some of the biggest changes to women mm. and girls' lives yeah. uh, globally, yeah. not just in the UK. Yeah. yeah. And you're obviously a UK-focused foundation, so you're, you've got deep expertise. But do you have any guidance for people who are looking internationally or any great work you've seen going on from an international basis around women-led women, and women -led organisations? Um, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't no. want to. It's not put it on. Yeah, yeah I, I'm um, exhausted enough trying to work out what's <laughs> happening in the UK. UK. <laughs> and actually, I think there's a really interesting challenge for the UK because there is a difference between absolute and relative mm. inequality. And sometimes what we find, um, there's a bit of an argument levied back at the UK, which yeah. is why are you worried about women and girls here? Because actually you just got to look at Iran or Syria mm. um, or, you know, Sudan at the moment yeah. and women and girls' lives are so much worse. Yeah. And that is true. Absolutely, that mm. is true. But the relative inequality and the relative poverty that women and girls find yeah. themselves in the UK is is destroying women. Yeah. And so I think that there's a kind of, it can... It can almost be used against women and girls in the UK and in other kind of you know developed countries um, that um, you, you've got nothing to complain about because mm. you're not in Afghanistan. But actually, that it's, it's recognizing yeah. how these things relatively are experienced and, and the poverty and inequality that women face. Even and remembering that inequality manifests itself in so mm. many different ways. Mm. It isn't just about poverty. And in all stratas of, of life, you will find women who are less equal than yeah. men. Yeah. Uh, and you will find inequalities between women as well, mm. whether that's because of race or disability, sexual orientation yeah. and so on. Have we achieved equality here in the UK? Should we be quiet given the opportunities we have compared to some other countries? Is that a fair challenge? Well, sadly, the answer to that is a big and resounding no. And I just wanted to put some context and some numbers around the points that Rebecca has highlighted here. From a labour perspective, women are less likely to be employed full time than men, with 45% of women being employed full time compared to 61% of men. Almost double the amount of women are carers when compared to men. Less than a third of members of parliament are women and only a third of board members for the largest publicly listed companies are female. Unsurprisingly, inequalities between gender are even more acute when they intersect with racial inequality. According to a literature review, The Pay and Progression of Women and Colour, 
which was released in September by the Fawcett Society and the Runnymede Trust, black girls are twice as likely to be permanently excluded from school compared to white girls. Ethnic minorities had to send 60% more applications to enter the workforce and women make up only 6% of CEOs of FTSE 100 companies and 35% of civil service permanent secretaries, yet none of these are women of colour. And we're not just talking about women overall having less economic participation than men or the fact that they shoulder the majority of caring and labour in the home. We are also talking about their fundamental safety. Sadly, one in four adult women in the UK will experience some form of sexual violence and every three days a woman is murdered by a man. These life-changing events leave women and their children dealing with a really wide range of mental and physical issues that can create long-lasting negative impacts that not only adversely affect their own well-being but can have implications for society more broadly. Therefore, whilst it's absolutely true that compared to certain parts of the world, women and girls here in the UK have better opportunities, the point and the reality is that they don't all experience and benefit from those equal opportunities. And as a country, we are a really long way from achieving gender equality from any measure, whether that is economic participation or political empowerment. And that is why it is so important to continue to talk about inequality in the UK. Yes, I wanted to ask you about yes. Smallwood Trust because that was an incredible piece of um, getting extra money into the sector, wasn't it? Yes, it was. We were, we were um, the penultimate round of what the government's tampon tax mm. fund, and we were awarded one point nine million in partnership with Smallwood. And Smallwood Trust are a brilliant, very, yeah. very um, you know, vintage foundation <laughs> set up in the late nineteenth century by a brilliant female philanthropist. And um, they they tackle poverty and financial mm. inequality. Yeah. That's their mission. So um, Rosa and Smallwood Trust, we ran the, the Women Thrive Fund. Mm. And we invested 1.9 million in um, these organisations. And between them, collectively, as a result of our funding, they leveraged in a further 3.4 million wow. in, yeah. into the sector. And what they said, these organisations individually, was once they'd got funding from Rosa and Smallwood, mm. they could go to other funders. And other yeah. funders said, oh, well, if they trust you, we can give yeah. you money. Yeah. And that was just so incredible for us to mm. feel that just with with not very much funding from us, mm. other funders give them money and these organisations really, really start to grow. Last year, we had a great partnership with The Big Give. Yeah, They've I not agree. done a Women and Girls mm. Fund before. They were so open to the collaboration, yeah. really brilliant team there. And they won, uh, they ran their Women and Girls Match Fund. Mm. Um, and that's a great way for yeah. philanthropists to give as well. Yeah. So they work with the women and girls organisations to put up the kind of match funding bid on the website. And then other philanthropists could go in and match the, the yeah. fund. And it was a fantastic way of us sharing our expertise, mm -hmm. of the big give really, really focusing on women and girls and other donors coming in and giving those organisations funding. It doesn't work for every women and girls organisation. No. One of the things about having very small charities mm -hmm. is they haven't got big fundraising no, arms. Exactly. 
you know too busy delivering the services too busy delivering their services Mm. they really really struggle to find Mm. the time to to write the bids that allow funders to you know enable funders to put even think about them let alone give them money (laughs) so um our collaboration with the big give was a very important um piece of work and that's the sort of work we love doing we are tiny Mm. um and we aim to you know distribute about two and a half million over a two-year funding cycle um, and that's, you know, that's a big ambition for yeah. us. Um, and so we want to work with others because our mission is to get more yeah. money into the women and girls sector. Obviously, if people want to give it to us to distribute, that's brilliant. Yeah. But generally, we want everybody to be distributing it yeah. to this sector. And like you said, so it's just over three million extra and you only get 74 million as a whole sector. Yeah. And 24 of that goes to the large charities exactly. doing, gen- you know, doing gender work. Gen- gender work, but they're gender neutral organisations. Mm, yeah. Exactly that. So we, we need to shift some of the, the way, we want to shift the way the money flows. Mm. We, want to, we want to increase the amount flowing in and ensure that it really does go to those women-led yeah. organisations because they are, they are where mm. the change happens at an individual level, at a social level, and and in kind of historically mm. um, and over the long term. Yeah. We've got a long, you know, we've got a 200 year track record yeah. of doing this. And um, that I'm very confident that will continue into the future. Yeah. But like, yeah. and when you look at what boys are saying, when boys, you know, this, you know, the rise of people like Andrew Tate, if you read Laura Bates's book, Men Who Hate Women, they, these web um, Facebook sites have 300 to 400,000 young men on them. And I think a lot of that is because because we've been so concentrated, quite rightly and correctly, on the problems of women and young women and, and young girls over the last 20 years or so, um, that we don't realise that most of the conversations that a 15-year-old boy will have overheard, whenever the word man is mentioned, it's things like mm. typical men, typical straight white men, oh, the patriarchy, toxic masculinity. And so the only person who's saying anything positive about men and going, it's okay to be a boy, masculinity isn't in itself a bad thing, is someone like Andrew Tate. So he brings with him a whole bunch of baggage, which is not going to solve those boys' problems. Yeah, so much baggage. So um, you you note in the book the number of young men who believe that, in a sense, feminism's gone too far, hasn't mm-hmm. it? It's just, it, as you've just said, it has left them behind. But what do you think then kind of solves that problem? Do you have to wait a whole other generation for some brave men to be what? Well, the offer I make in the book is just pointing out, like, kind of, if you think women are winning, like, if you think boys are losing, then still, statistically, we have less money than men. There is the pay gap. One in four of us will be sexually assaulted. Like, kind of, we know the structural economic political problems behind women. But the one thing we have got that might make you think we are winning has been feminism. This brilliant crowdsourced network of things where if you have any problem, you can go online and there'll be a blog or a book or a film or a movie star or a stand-up comedian dealing with that problem instantly. And there is not that resource for boys. There is that half of the upbringing that I've done of my two teenage daughters was actually done by the wider network of feminism. Whenever I got something wrong, they could find another resource. I don't know how I would have raised teenage boys because that conversation is not happening. Well, I don't have boys. Fee has does have a son. You have daughters as well, don't you? So I, I confess I don't know what I'd have done if I'd have had sons. I'd have loved to have, loved to have had a son. So have you changed your view then? Do you actually, have you begun to think that those young boys who spoke to you a couple of years ago and said it's actually tougher to be us than to be a girl, do you think they're right? Well, the thing I enjoyed most is going through it like a kind of, like a, like, you know, a big old mum and going, here are the things you're right to be worried about. And in these, I think I give eight reasons where it is hard to be a boy or a man than a woman now. 
So I very much see this as an extension of my feminism because if you, if the half of all women and girls' problems is men, angry men, abusive men, scared men, confused men, and you can't fix the girls until you fix the boys. So I genuinely believe that the next part of feminism is sharing this resource that we've invented, which is talking about gender, which we've used to talk about women. We now need to use it to talk about men. Could we talk a bit about men for a moment? Because, um, is it Caitlin Moran talks yeah. a lot of, she's great, um, that you need to fix the men to, to help mm. the women. Do you have, how do you feel about that? I think it's a that? very interesting and important argument and discussion mm. to have. Yeah. Um, one of the things we find at Rosa is, again, reflecting a little bit like daily life where um, women are not men's emotional sport do mm. dogs and mm. animals you know yeah. we are we exist in our own right mm. to do our own work yeah. i wish there was more funding for men to help men yeah positively yeah and i i get quite upset if there's an expectation that women and girls organizations will mm. somehow do that work with yes. men and boys as well yeah. and the other thing that worries me sometimes is that when the funders are moving towards having a sort of gender fund right mm. and there is a move that you know work with perpetrators yeah. work with you know tackling misogyny um, amongst men and boys really really critical mm. and crucial work but there isn't a bigger pie. Yeah. And actually, I, w I want there to be a pot of funding, which is for women and girls organisations. Yeah. I'd like there to be another pot of funding, yeah. separate money, which is about addressing the issues that um, among men mm. and the, the, the issues that men create for wider society. Yeah. But my worry comes that it comes at the expense of women's lives. Yes, yeah. And that is something I could never, ever support. No. Um, and so, yes, but give us more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's right. Definitely don't take any more yeah, away from you. Don't take any less, more away from us. But sometimes you see that, particularly with statutory agencies, yeah. they'll say, we're not funding violence against women and girls anymore. We're going to fund this perpetrator program. Yes. So they just do a direct transfer of, oh, that's of awful. cash. That's awful. And that is awful yeah. because um, it should just be new money. Yeah, exactly. It's about sister causing, you know, it's about the root cause of the problem rather than, you know, helping with interventions, etc. But you can't just cut off one source of funding. I mean, exactly that. And, you know, root causes is brilliant. Mm. I'm a mother of sons, yes, you know, yeah. brilliant. Do what you need to do. But we've still got thousands of women over here that every day are, are dealing with the current exactly. issues of, of male violence, mm. coercive control, yeah. financial abuse and so on. Uh, and systems and and um, you know health services, housing yeah. systems, so on that are set up for a for a single yeah. male model yes. you know, role, yeah. and um, women are really really losing out to that. Yeah. So it's all very well saying, well, let's go to the root causes, let's go to the root causes, but actually you've got a whole lot of stuff over here yeah. that still needs to be addressed. And these are decades, decades, decades to put right. Absolutely, I mean, and intergenerational, yeah. exactly. and you know, and cultural, you know, as cultural, well. absolutely, yeah. But I'm not depressed. We mustn't be depressed. <laughs> we mustn't be depressed. No, there's too much good stuff happening. There is. <laughs> and thank God for you guys, honestly. <laughs> we're not here for a good time. We're here for a long time. Long time yeah. <laughs> we were definitely living that one, Rebecca. No. <laughs> I'm sure it feels very long. God bless you. Um, well, that's been amazing. I mean, one thing that we always um, finish up on because... I called this podcast Practical Philanthropy for a couple of reasons. And so one, one of the things we wanted to do, apart from to bring, you know, this amazing expertise that's out there in the foundation sector or philanthropists who've been funding a specific area to new people in bring, you know, who are coming into the sector is 
to really um, enable them to take something away from, you know, the time you spent today, mm. whether, you know, this half hour, um, something practical. And so um, I just wondered, you mentioned a couple of times you've been in the sector of sort of, is it 15? 25. 25 years. <laughs> If you can think back that far. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I just wondered, what do you think you'd love to have been told 25 years ago? I love this question and I wish I had known how long change takes. Yeah. Um, it takes a very long time and everything you're you're doing now will probably bear fruit, but you might not. You might not even be alive Life when it happens, it. Um, but it and it, and, and it should you should still do what you're doing. Yeah. And the other thing, and someone did say this to me when I was about ten years into my career. They said um, the price of progress is eternal vigilance. Mm -hmm. And what we are seeing now in the United Kingdom and around the world in the United States is some very very hard won rights of women mm -hmm. being rolled back. Yeah. And we must never, ever be complacent yeah. because when you think you've won it, some will, someone will come along and they will take it away. And every single right mm. that women have won in this country and around the globe has been won by women. Yeah. We are the reason why change happens. Yeah. We, we have to stay focused on it. Yeah. So I'd say change takes a really long time. Don't be complacent. Keep at it. Keep at it. <laughs> yeah. And be vigilant yeah. because some sod will come and take it off you if you're not careful. Yeah. We got some worrying um, things coming out of our own government around things like just the right to protest, haven't Absolutely. we? And you know the immigration bill, all these sorts of things, Absolutely. which will disproportionately affect women and children. I'm sure. Women and children, black women and children, yeah. women with no recourse mm, to public funds, yeah. women who are in precarious housing situations. Yeah. I mean, it is um, two child benefit, yeah. you know, cap. Yeah. This is pushing women into poverty yeah. and keeping them there. Yeah. It is unacceptable. Yeah. And the intergenerate, the, the next, you know, the mm. impact on children now yeah. is going to be felt through our lifetimes yeah. we are going to see such a long-term consequence of these mm. of some of these shifts and yeah. again it's always keeping the gender lens i mean i can look at any anything in life and think what impacts that having on women yeah. i just think about it all the time finishing up then so one of the things i love about the foundation sector and i'm very new to this by the way you know this whole philanthropy lark um respectively compared to your 25 years um is when i sort of peer over the wall is i just think oh my god these people are just so brilliant they're so expert um and you're all so open and so collaborative and i think that's really fantastic and i'm this huge believer that people can really pick up, piggyback off all the great work that you're doing so and the research you're doing. So how best is it, Rebecca, for people to follow the research and the work that Rose is doing? Um, our website is up mm. to date with all of our work yeah. um, and our social media as well. Mm. We, you know, we, we think very highly of social media, so we put a lot of our work out on Twitter, yeah. on Facebook mm -hmm. um, and, um, so that, and, and LinkedIn. So those are very good ways mm. of, um, of finding out what we're doing. You don't always see the change that you are trying to create in the year that you are trying to create it, in the decade you try and create it, but you still have to do what you are doing. This is an absolute classic line from Rebecca and for me exemplifies the role of philanthropy in risk-taking to be that long-term partner and to back lasting systemic change. 
As always, I really love my time with my guest and I really learned a lot. And I particularly love Rebecca's clear call to actions. The one thing she thinks after 25 years of working in the sector that would really move the dial for women and girls led organisations is for all funders to have a separate pot of capital to allocate to those organisations. This gender lens approach can be applied to any area of giving from education, homelessness and climate. And if funders need help finding those charities, Rosa has mapped the sector via their online tool where you can search by geographical location or by cause area. We've linked to this in the podcast notes. I also really loved that clarity she had about men that we need to have much more capital going to men and boys organisations to solve the challenges that they face and the issues they create for wider society, but that we absolutely cannot do this at the expense of the women and girls sector. And finally, whilst not my finest line of questioning regarding the global landscape, those who are interested in the international perspective would do well to look at the work of the Sigrid Rousing Trust. This is our last episode of Practical Philanthropy in 2023. A big thank you to those of you who have been listening and wishing you all a wonderful rest when the holiday season comes. The team will be back with our next episode in 2024. Until then, you can reach me on lynn.tomlinson at casanovecapital.com.